Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, my guest is Liz Salmi. Liz has blogged about her blogged about her brain cancer experience since her diagnosis, just one week after her 29th birthday. Her website, thelizarmy.com, now receives over 30,000 visits each year. Co-founder of Brain Tumor Social Media known as hashtag BTSM, a patient-run community for patients, caregivers, and clinicians, Liz connects people diagnosed with brain tumors around the world. She speaks regularly on how healthcare professionals and patients are connecting through digital media, media, including a TEDx talk in 2013 on how patients are using the internet to form their own support networks. In 2016, Liz participated in the Stanford Medicine X Conference as an e-patient delegate and is featured in the documentary, The Open Patient, Healing Through Sharing. Liz is Director of Communications for the Coalition for Compassionate Care of California, ensuring all people with chronic or serious illnesses receive education on advanced care planning and have access to quality patient-centered palliative care. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to have you. Um, I would like to just start with your story since uh, we've just covered the briefest of outlines in your in your bio. Uh, can you let people know both what uh, about your diagnosis and, and what that was like for you and also how that got you started with the social media work you do? Sure. So my professional background is in digital communications. And in July 2008, a week after my 29th birthday, I suffered a really strong seizure. It's called a grand mal seizure. And that's when you go completely unconscious. This came out of the blue. I've never had a seizure before. I was at work. And after the seizure, uh, you know, they called 911. I was rushed to the ER. And long story short, after going through a scan, they found a mass in my brain. And um, within a, a couple weeks, I had brain surgery, a craniotomy, and the pathology revealed that the mass in my brain was malignant. It, and if anyone who's listening knows stuff about brain cancer, it's a grade two astrocytoma. And brain cancers are graded, you know, one, two, three, four, four being most malignant. So mine was um, on a lower malignancy scale. But it's in that same category of brain cancer as a glioblastoma, which is the most malignant uh, brain cancer that there is. And it's the same kind of brain cancer that Senator Ted Kennedy had. Um, George Gershwin had a glioblastoma. Um, and also uh, Joe Biden's son had a glioblastoma as well. So many people might be familiar with this really aggressive type of brain cancer. So I'm on the grade two scale, which means that obviously it's not as malignant, but it is estimated in time, it should turn into something more malignant. So after being diagnosed, um, I, I actually waited a month or so or two or three, had another scan and it shown that it grew back. So I've already had a recurrence three months later and then <clears throat> had another brain surgery. So I had two brain surgeries. 
And then I started a two-year process of taking chemotherapy. So that's the real clinical side of things. Um, uh, as, as somebody with a slower-growing brain cancer that's supposed to become more malignant, I uh, realize that I'm kind of in an interesting space where I can do more in this time in between to advocate and speak on behalf of people in the brain cancer community. Well, also... Um it it connects for me with uh uh you know when you have uh, a cancer and it's net it's never kind of off the radar uh this was true of my wife too uh mm-hmm. it it puts life in a certain context do you find um i mean you're doing a lot of cancer work <laughs> uh- <laughs> yeah no it's it's strange it's it's something that you if you if you never had uh, if you never had cancer or never lived with somebody with cancer, you'd think what what you see in the media is that someone gets diagnosed, they go through treatment, surgery and treatment, and then they're done, and they either are cured or considered survivor, uh, or 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 they die. And with certain types of cancers, many types of cancers, and especially mine, there is no cure. There's no, it's something that's always active until it continues to grow. So I always am frustrated with the concept of what a survivor means. To me, pre-cancer, I thought survivor meant you were cured. And really surviving to me means just continuing to live and, and maintain normalcy, even though I'm living with cancer. I think that's important, too, because uh, I've rarely met a person for whom it's truly completely over, even when they get the all clear. Yeah, there's Uh, there's the (laughs) ongoing like mental state, even if there is a quote all cure and and you're clear and there's no sign of cancer. There's that ongoing mental status that worry people have of what if it comes back. And that's an ongoing I don't know if that's a PTSD type situation, but that's an ongoing worry for many people. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I think it's UCSF that's studying recurrence fear right now. Oh, wow. That's uh, interesting. Uh, because it used to be that that was thought to be sort of maladaptive somehow. Uh, but now it's it's so 100% normal to that situation that they're trying to take a look at it and uh, what helps it, what doesn't, all that kind of thing. So that's right in line with what we're, what we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes I've run into people who seem to do better when they actually don't get the all clear emotionally. Right. Uh, no, because- and it's it's interesting. Um, great cancer uh, cancer centers are one of the things they have to do in order to be considered um, certified cancer centers, I think it's through like Livestrong, is to have survivorship planning. So if you're one of those people who's lucky to be, quote, a considered a survivor, that afterwards there's a, a plan for you in your care and your checkups. And um, I know that is common among uh, breast cancer and some of the more common cancers that there's survivorship plans. And I remember asking my neuro-oncologist, the brain cancer doctor, uh, you know, is there a survivorship plan for people with brain cancer? And he's like, man, I wish, wish we had time and the resources to even consider something like that. So it's kind of a sad state of and, affairs. Uh, well, and is that something that you believe is particular to brain cancer somehow? That, the, uh, that a survivorship plan doesn't exist? Doesn't exist, Yeah. What, yeah. well, how, do you, how do you account for that? I mean, way back when I began, uh, there was virtually nothing for breast cancer either. It's activism that's 
mm-hmm. that's changed that to a large degree. But um, do you think there's more to it than that? Why a survivorship plan doesn't exist? Well, there's, let's see, there's 120 different types of brain tumors. Oh, by the way, as an aside, I've done a a lot of volunteering with the National Brain Tumor Society, which is the nation's largest uh, nonprofit dedicated to brain tumor research. And and so I, I know some facts. And so there's 120 different types of brain tumors out there. And uh, out of out of everyone who's diagnosed with a brain cancer today, the only 30% of those folks will be alive in five years. So mm. the survivorship rate just out of all brain tumors across the board, um, with the most malignant and most common brain cancer I mentioned earlier, the glioblastoma, only um, 5% of those diagnosed today will be alive in five years. So out of all, all of the um, folks who are diagnosed, those who are left, people like me, to continue to go out and advocate, there's a smaller number. And not everybody wants to go out, just run around and become an advocate with, for people with brain cancer. They want to go back to their sure. lives. Sure. So I, I just, I think there, the money and research is put more back into how can we uh, extend, the quali- extend lives, quality of lives, and less is put so much into the focus on survivorship for people with brain tumors, as opposed to, say, cancers where there's more of a chance somebody can continue to live a long and healthy life after they go through treatment. That makes sense. I uh, my mom died of pancreatic cancer, and I uh, the year she was sick, I ran in a fundraising run, mm-hmm. and when they had the survivors of pancreatic cancer come to the front, I think there were five. There were a couple thousand people there. So, and same wow. thing, uh, n- you know, not as many people to do the work, right? <laughs> kind of, um, but there were a lot of families there that are picking that up but um that does Absolutely. that does impact things doesn't it? um so for any person who gets diagnosed with cancer or at least anyone i've ever met there it's it's just a staggering uh thing to happen in your life but i think it's especially impactful when you're at a stage of life when it's basically not happening to anybody around you uh did it uh how did it impact your uh, you know, relationships at work, your friendships, your community? So great question. So when I had that first seizure and suddenly got yanked into the world of being a patient, I had just started a brand new job and I was, it was Friday of the first week of a brand new job. And Uh then I was in the hospital. Yeah. And, um, it was, essentially I lost my job. They hadn't been there long enough to qualify for any sort of, um, coverage and legal stuff to have them keep me around. And I was, like I said, I was 29 and I had just left my old job, which was very stable to start a new great opportunity where I was taking a step up in, um, you know, my level of, uh, of the kind of work I was doing. And so to, have that all go away, you know, you take a risk, oh, start a new job. And then to have that all get yanked away, that was a big blow to the ego. And I know I should have been focusing more on, wow, brain cancers, that's a pretty big deal. But I was so more scared of, of losing my independence, not having an income, you know, losing the job, uh, having to rely on others to kind of help coordinate care because of having seizures, I wasn't allowed to drive anymore. So there's losing that independence, 
and and I was dating a guy for about a year. Uh, spoiler alert, he's now my husband. He's a great guy. <laughs> but we, we, we were dating for a year at that time. We didn't live together. So and he was just finishing um, school. And so, I, you know, my my mom lived in another state. So it was this loss of all of my independence. Uh, everything I had worked for, I had just bought a condo, like, how am I going to pay my mortgage? All of that, you know, money, finances, independence, just everything that... Health insurance. <laughs> yes, health insurance. Yeah, absolutely. And how is that going to happen? It was just chaos. And because of the fact that the disease is neurological in nature, like I mentioned with seizures, you get started on these new anti-seizure medications, which totally wipe your mind. It takes six weeks to kind of get acclimated and functioning in your brain again. So all of these people that my friends had to jump in and support and, and coordinate care and rides and someone to come and deliver me food and all of this. And it was, it was chaos. It was crazy. And so, um, I didn't focus so much on the cancer so much because I, in my, in my body, I was like, well, I'm still me. And okay, I'm not hurting currently and I don't feel like I'm dying right now. So I feel fine other than the seizures. And I think the people around me were scared. And my boyfriend, now husband, his name's Brett. Brett was scared and sad. And, and the people who loved me and cared about me, I'm sure not in front of me, were crying and scared. And my mother, who lived in another state, scared and crying. But mm -hmm. me by myself, I just was like, yeah, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. But I'm mad about these other things going on. And I think there was, they talk about the stages of grief and the, um, I think I jumped to, well, in my mind, I believe I jumped to that acceptance phase, the, okay, I have brain cancer. I will do the things that are needed to be done and treatment. And then I, and then I would say, then there's that anger part was also in there. Of, what sure. the heck? I thought I was doing everything fine. I'm totally healthy. I don't smoke. I exercise. I eat well. I'm a good person. Why is this happening? Um, that's that's really familiar to me too. That sense of I have things to do. I can't I can't stop and you know register what's happening entirely. I need to do the things I need to do. Mm -hmm. uh, that's and I wonder if that was sort of uh, you before that. Would you have predicted that's how you would respond to it? Had someone said, if you ever get cancer, how will you respond, you know, or was right. it kind of a surprise to you? I I think it was a surprise to other people. I, again, it's just me being myself and my own skin. And I, um, so the, the people who helped me during that time, my, my now husband, Brett, and my best friend's dad um, really came through for me. I, I'm not as close with my family. Like I said, my mom's in another state, don't have a relationship with my father. But my best friend's dad swooped in and helped. He, his wife had, um, had ovarian cancer, and she eventually passed just the previous year from ovarian cancer. And so he had spent the previous year, years of his life being an advocate for her through her cancer experience. And he, he had his loss. But then here's somebody important in his life, me, who is suddenly dealing with this. So he used all of the skills that he had developed to help me and my husband become more knowledgeable patients. And we learned so much from him. And so um, it was interesting to him because he was dealing with his wife, 
where her experience was she wanted to she didn't want to know anything she just wanted to focus on being happy and living her life and let him worry about the decisions of what treatment or what clinical trial she should follow whereas the way i responded was wow this is interesting this is strange uh, this is fascinating. Tell me more about, I would like to see these scans. What is it in my brain? And so I think what now, what I know is no, no patient is the same. We're all going to respond differently. Um, some people don't want to know anything. Some people like me want to know absolutely everything. And I, I really think that I guess is going to make, uh, I think the people who I feel bad for, I say bad with quotes around it is our clinicians who have so many different personalities to deal with. They can't expect us all to respond in the exact same way. And um, it's, it, they just, I guess they're, they're continuing to focus on their patient-centered care and figuring all of us out. Yeah, well, and that's, that's actually, if you recognize that, that every patient is different, it's manageable. For instance, my mom's doctor, the first, very first visit said, what kind of a patient are you? Are you the type of person who wants all the information? You know, she she took a couple of minutes to lay out all the different ways people might handle that situation and find out which type of person she was. That's pretty easy. It didn't take very long. And oh, it and incredible. and it helped it helped everything from then on cuz then she, you know, she made a little note, tell her everything and uh uh, talk directly to her. Don't talk to her daughter. And, you know, that's what they did from then then on. So that's it can be done. Yeah. yeah. I was very shocked. I, I have not experienced that too often. It was great. So we're, uh, we're coming on our first break. And uh, we'll just continue from here when we come back, Liz. I, I think you have such important um, wisdom to offer. I know there are a lot of people out there listening who who are going through this experience or have. So uh, we'll be back soon. And listeners, while we're on the break, you can go to my website, social media. Speaking of social media, it's all linked on the Good Grief, Grief page at Voice America, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And to find Liz Salmi, you can go to thelizarmy.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN. 
or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Liz Salmi, whose brain cancer diagnosis resulted in or led to her work as a patient advocate, uh, her uh, social media presence with other people with cancer, and also she's the communications director for Coalition for Compassionate Care of California that we'll be talking about a little later on. Um, But Liz, that idea that every patient is different and that it helps so much if the people that are working with you know what it is you're wanting. Um, I was telling you over the break that I I have a a client who has gotten two opinions for recurrent ovarian cancer that, that are not similar at all. And she's trying to sort out, you know, those issues. Uh, And, and know enough to make an informed decision. It's really difficult. Yeah, that's very, um, that is very challenging. And, and I, I think that's the situation where you're like, okay, I've got a first opinion and I have a second opinion and you need that, that tiebreaker to then you go on to that third opinion. That's, that's a hard one. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, sometimes you just, there is no right answer and you have to feel out your own sense of things, but, uh, you want to be very, very informed before you go there, I think. Definitely. Uh, so it seems to me, just looking over, uh, you know, your your blog and uh, website and the various things you've done, that you quite quickly started sharing your experience, uh, or informing at least people. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that makes some sense, just because that's what you do for a living, you know, uh, but. I notice a lot of people sort of want to adjust themselves before they share with others. They're kind of go to a private space that didn't seem to have happened for you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I, you know, like you said, my, my, my background is in communication. And and as I shared earlier, I stopped working and um, lost my job after, you know, I knew I had a brain tumor. I lost the job. So, I had time on my hands and I had skills and I had, you know, there were friends and family who wanted to know what was going on with me. So I post, you know, uploaded a blog and just started writing about what was going on because when people are worried about you, everyone wants to call you and ask what they can do and see how they can help, which is fantastic. But sometimes you just don't have that time or energy to return all those calls or all those text messages or now all those Facebook posts. So for me, it was easier to, I was going to be writing about, I was, I was thinking about what I was going through. So I was writing and 
posting something online was a lot easier so people could just check there to find out how I was doing. But like you said, it's hard to decide, okay, how much do you reveal? And my main concern about revealing stuff about me was personal details that could eventually be tracked back to me in the future. So I didn't write at first sharing anything about my last name or my geographic location or, you know, the hospital I went to or my doctor's names. I just, you know, my name was Liz. And, Mm. and so I did that. And then for, after about a year or so, I started doing, um, or after two years, I started doing more in the um, volunteering space in the community. And in time, you know, there'd be articles or things on the internet linked back or talking about me speaking at an event, had my first and last name attached in my blog. And in time, it it would became obvious who I was and what my first and last name were and, uh, you know, what area of California I live in. And so I, and, and then I was inspired in, in my work life to work in healthcare in some capacity. And so the, the lines started to blur between uh, me as a patient and me as a, a communicator who's really passionate about healthcare. And so now I'm, I'm out, I'm out of the, the cancer closet and it's, it's, uh, I, I don't, you know, constantly run around with my patient hat on at work, but, um, but it's, it's it's interesting because I I learn about and well I guess we'll talk about where I work eventually, yes. but I do, I, I do I do see things when we're talking about stuff I see it from a oh that's interesting I'm going to communicate it for, and and learning from about things from a clinical perspective and then also wearing my patient hat going oh my gosh this seems scary to a patient so it's it's really fascinating. Well, that's actually kind of a natural way to start talking about where you work, uh, which which was originally familiar to me because I spoke at a conference right when the um, uh, End of Life Care Act had passed. And there was a lot of very fierce discussion about that at this conference, which was an end of life conference. And uh, someone from that organization was there. So I first knew about you guys uh, totally about that, um, you know, right to die, for want of a better expression, um, activism that that you were doing. But you do a lot more than that. Isn't, isn't that so? Yeah, and I just want to clarify um, the the bill you're talking about in California. It was called the End of Life Option Act. It was signed by Governor Jerry Brown in California in 2015, and went into effect in California in June June 9th of 2016. So relatively recently, and it was uh, championed by a, an advocacy organization called Compassion and Choices. And their their physician aid in dying or physician-assisted suicide or or however you want to refer to it is their main advocacy um, focus. I work for a different organization called the Coalition for Compassionate Care of California. And we promote high-quality compassionate care for anyone who's seriously ill or nearing the end of life. Just the idea of everyone should have access to and knowledge of quality advanced care planning, knowing what their options are. And as, as, an, as a nonprofit organization, we didn't take any stance on that, the end of life option act or physician aid and dying. Right. So we, we didn't take a political side to that. But so knowing, I mean, that that's, that's that... now, knowing that that's now law in California and it's a thing that exists, it's quote, an option for people. Um, we do, you know, we do education for clinicians about palliative care, advanced care planning. So that is an option that exists. So we provide education about, you know, what it is that pay, Clinicians and patients need to know around it, but we don't advocate necessarily for or against it. 
got you. I may have gotten the two names a little mixed. Sorry about that. that. (laughs) I'm glad glad we've got that clarified. Um, But it must be, uh, well, of course, you know, it it happens often that people face uh, something like cancer and then go into work that has to do with, uh, in your case, end of life. Uh, but I wonder what that is is like for you. You said it brings up, sometimes you're feeling more like the patient, sometimes like the observer, you know. Uh, there are a lot of different angles you would have on that that maybe another person not in your circumstance wouldn't have. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm a very curious person um, and and obviously having a, a close health experience um, working in the space, getting to work with amazing, um, compassionate physicians, nurse practitioners, social workers, chaplains, you name it, anyone who interfaces with patients in the healthcare system. And they're, they're all, they're all fans of palliative care and making sure patients, uh, preferences, their medical preferences are expressed and that they're honored, um, is fascinating. So when I learn new stuff and I get to I get to hang out with these people. I, I feel like they're rock stars. And then I'm the person going, oh, my God, you're awesome. I'm so excited <laughs> I get to work with you. Um, I hope every patient gets the, you know, inter- you know, I hope you're someone I know's doctor one day because they all deserve, uh, you know, the people who are part of our coalition are just amazingly compassionate people. And they're all about communication, healthy communication with patients. So I'm a fan, first and foremost. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, and and um, and and it's it's interesting when you talk about how, as a patient, do I respond to these things? Um, I'm in meetings, or I get to go to conferences where case studies might be um, uh, talked about, and they'll so they'll they'll bring up a, a, a for instance, like oh, we've got a 43 year old female patient, and she's been diagnosed with insert name of diagnosis here, and it's always fascinating and interesting to me when the example is. Uh, grade four glioblastoma, brain cancer. And, and uh, you know, as somebody who lives with cancer, not everyone in, in, the, in the room knows I have brain cancer. When that is used as the textbook example of a really bad scenario, mm-hmm. where they then need to have, a, quote, a conversation about what the patient should expect or what do they want or what are their preferences, I, I get tickled inside where I'm like, ooh, what are these people going to say that they should say to this patient? Because... In the future, well, I am currently, and in the future, I am that patient. And so I get to be surrounded by these people and hear, you know, oh, well, we should definitely start, quote, and when they talk about end-of-life conversations, they call it the conversation uh, as Mm. proper noun, capital T, capital C for the conversation. Well, we should start the conversation with a patient early. As soon as they receive this diagnosis, um, no matter what the prognosis because in you know in the future this it may go down a certain path and we we want them to be prepared and that we've already discussed what their what their preferences are and so um back to me living as somebody with brain cancer whenever brain cancer is used as the example of a, of a bad scenario i'm like you have no idea but i am that person with the bad scenario and and it and it and it's exciting to, to kind of be a fly on the wall in those rooms and to learn. Well, also, I, I'm uh, imagining that the that the 
possibility of having some impact on how people who are dealing with a diagnosis are experiencing them, uh, as in the healthcare world, might also be somewhat exciting. I know you're a real strong advocate um, for uh, opening up that dialogue, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, which might lead us to talk about the open source film, uh, which I just thought was fantastic. The the idea that the medical community would actively want to open the records to the patient and have them have every note available without having it be a big problem or you have to request or something. That just seemed fantastic to me. Yeah, uh, open notes is... An interesting initiative. It started as, um, and so we're we're talking about open notes, which is actually a movement. Um, it was started out as at. at uh, uh, sorry, I'm I'm pulling up the actual website for open notes right now to make sure I've, I'm getting it correct. Um, open notes. It started out at um, uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where mm. they ran. I, 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 I don't want to say it's a clinical trial, but it was a it was a trial with a hundred doctors and their patients. Where when you go to a um, when you go to your appointment and meet with your doctor after you're done meeting with the doctor, they make notes of your visit with them in your electronic medical record. And as patients, we don't have access to those notes, even though they're notes about our conversation with them. So as a as a uh, test case for an entire year, they took a hundred doctors who said, "Hey, I'm willing to share my notes." with the um, with my patients and the patients actually got access either online or through a printout of the notes from their appointment and out of uh, all of the folks who participated in that trial um, 99% of the people who participated both doctors and the patients felt like they benefited from seeing those notes at a later date and time and that has um, that now that concept the movement of opening up the notes has moved on and millions of patients are now getting access to their, their um, notes from their doctor's appointments around the country. I, I really think that's fantastic because uh, it's not uh, in any way surprising how much patients would benefit from that, just uh, dealing with cancer every day uh, in my work. That's, that's just an obvious thing. Some people won't want to read them, but even having access and deciding not to read them seems powerful to me. But the surprise to me is how much value you're telling me the medical personnel find in it, that they were also 99% on board with it being uh, a good and helpful thing. Yeah, and if you if you sit down and you have a, you know, a long and great conversation with your patient and you they say oh I'm having pain here I'm having this that there and you're saying okay you should try this you should try that oftentimes patients forget things that happened in clinic in that setting and so for the patient to be able to refer back to these notes and go oh my doctor said to try this and that this might help you have a record straight from the doctor's actual mind of the whole conversation. So it's it actually, uh, physicians find that patients are more likely to actually follow up and do the things that were recommended of them. And then patients find it easier because then they don't have to, you know, if they forgot something, they don't have to call or send an email. I mean, they might still do that, but they, it actually cuts out that that loss of time and it helps them remember what, what was said. 
also just uh, patient. I've been trained by uh, some people at uh, a, a cancer center in uh, Canada about uh, kind of an end of life management thing they call managing cancer and living meaningfully. And they've studied people who are anxious, much more use of, of doctor time, you know, just a very high use mm-hmm. of the medical system. And a lot of anxiety has to do with a lack of information, feeling not, not in the loop. Um, yes. So I can imagine that actually, actually the doctors end up, you know, with not needing to be in quite as much contact too on a kind of holding hands level that people might feel so more secure because they can see what's going on and how the doctor is looking at what's going on. That's right. They could log in anytime from their portal, you know, online portal and be able to access exactly what was said, especially, you know, it might be a week later or it might be a couple months later and say, what was it they said again? Cause we're not going to retain everything that said, I, you know, I, especially am that in that circumstance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, do you believe, um, we, we've got just a short time before the break, but do you believe that doctors change what they write in the notes because they know that the patients are going to have access to them? So I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a fan and advocate for the open notes movement, but I actually don't have access as a patient to my own doctor's notes. And so uh. that's, so that is actually something that um, I'm going to be working more on um, in the next couple of months to year. And maybe that's something we talk about again after the break. Um, yeah, because that's, that's <laughs> okay. That, that's, that's such a interesting juxtaposition there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go back to that when we get back. And folks, you can go to my, my page, the Good Grief page at Voice America to get in touch with me. Or to find Liz Salmi, you can go to thelizarmy.com. Back in a few minutes. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. 
Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Liz Salmi, whose own cancer diagnosis led her to work as a patient advocate and including as the Director of Communications for Coalition for Compassionate Care of California. And Liz, before the break, we were talking about uh, the fact that this open notes, uh, which you described and advocated for so eloquently in, in the film about that subject, you actually don't have access to your, yourself to your notes. And that's a study, stunning kind of collision there. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and, and the point of the film, and it's 15 minutes long, it's online. Um, people can just search the phrase, uh, o- the open patient to find it if they want to watch it. It's free. Um, and it was produced by a company called Red Hat, which is actually a technology company that runs um, open source technology solutions. And the what they do is they put together short documentaries that illustrate the quote open source philosophy and if you don't know what open source uh, usually is uh, uh, linked to technology in the sense that open source promotes say a universal access or free license to a product's design or blueprint for example the internet is open source anyone can add Mm -hmm. to it anyone can build off of it and um, and that sounds very abstract but um, the open patient focuses on the philosophy of open source as it relates to the patient experience. And so they, the video focuses on myself and another patient and then the open notes movement. And why they included me is because of my blogging since diagnosis and openly sharing my experience which at first I thought I was just putting out there for friends and family. I was thinking, oh, who else is going to care about this? But in time, because it was online, when people would search the internet for key phrases like brain cancer, brain cancer survivor, what's it like to have brain surgery? What is it like to have this certain chemotherapy? How long do people with brain cancer live? Like You think of every search term that someone might have when they're diagnosed with this disease or their friends or family might have, and they come across my blog seeing someone who's living with this disease. I, I think, and from what I hear, uh, that people get some hope out of that. And they're Absolutely. like, what? Yeah. And, um, and, and for me, what, I, what has been most impactful back to me, you know, when you do something and then you suddenly realize it does good in the world, it's just mind blowing. I'm like, I didn't know that this would turn into that. Um, but from time to time, I hear from, you know, the spouse of someone who's been diagnosed with a brain cancer or, or the parent of a child with living with a pediatric brain tumor who says, thank you for sharing this because my spouse or my child or my best friend or my mom or my dad won't talk about this because they close mm. up. And, mm. and back to, quote, open sourcing and sharing freely an experience is what was captured on my part of the film. And, and then the other components of the documentary, they, they featured another brain cancer, um, person living with brain cancer, a fantastic, smart guy named Stephen Keating, who's open sourcing his, uh, genome about here's everything you need to know clinically about me and it's online and you can download it. And, um, I'm inspired by him and he's inspiring me to do some similar work. And then, then lastly, in the documentary, they talk about the open source, mo- uh, open notes movement, the idea of openly sharing with patients their own clinical notes. And 
through the process of being part of the documentary, I got to know the Open Notes people more. And they're, what they're doing is fantastic. And um, I realized the notes or the, the details I could access in my electronic, from my medical record online were real basic. It was like, oh, Liz, this is how much Liz weighs. This is Liz's temperature and her blood pressure when she came into the appointment. Um, and I thought those were my notes. I was like, they asked me if I'm a smoker. Nope, still not a smoker. I thought those were notes. Uh-huh. And then I realized later, there's so much more that is captured in the record. And and I, I sorry if I'm babbling, but I, I'm, the, I'm the guest, so I'm excited. And, 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 and <laughs> Oh, you're not babbling at all. I think okay. it's fascinating what this, you're saying. <laughs> this, this is something I, I've, I found out from meeting the, the open notes folks is that um, – uh, my Myo, Myo Clinic, Myo Center does uses. Um, sorry, sorry, Mayo. They use Open Notes with their patients. And and as someone who's been involved in the brain tumor community as an advocate, I know many people living with brain cancers. And one of my really good friends, David, um, was a patient at Mayo. And when he found out that treatment was no longer working for him with his brain cancer, and that he was going to have to stop, you know, stop his treatment and elect to go on hospice um, because I was close with him and we have very similar, actually the same diagnosis. He, instead of emailing it to his friends and family first, he texted me and sent me a PDF of his open notes from his, his last appointment with his neuro-oncologist and said, Liz, these are the notes from my last appointment. I want you to know I'm starting hospice and I know you're gonna have many questions because we have the same diagnosis. And so I want you to read the notes from my appointment and it describes everything. And, and then of course we said, you know, our love you and uh, you're my, you know, my friend and lots of sweet things, but he sent me his exact notes from his appointment. So I would know what was going on exactly. And, you know, it, it was, it was so helpful to me and he didn't have to do that, but it was so helpful to me. And when I later learned about what the open notes movement meant I had already had an experience reading those notes, so I realized how important it was. I I have to think that was very, very good for him as well, because you kind of came to a direct conversation with him with information. Like, you, you started at a different point because you had all that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can imagine that being very helpful because the exhaustion of telling this person and then this person and then, you know, person after person what's going on. You can't do it completely uh, by and large that I, I could imagine it served you both very well. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if he had to field all of my questions of well, what about this or what about that, when it answered it all in the notes was amazing. And, and actually one of the stories told in the documentaries about how patients can then take those notes or, or share them with their caregivers or, or share them, you know, with other um, other people that they, you know, they might not have the time to go over every single detail. Well, I'm I'm sort of uh, putting all of the, the things we're talking about with you, uh, although you do a lot of different things, I guess I could put them all under the umbrella cat category of a passion for open knowledge. Um, for uh, kind of 
patients knowing more about what's going on with them, having all the information they need, going to, for instance, um, end of life planning fully informed, you know, uh, having access to all the information that applies to you. Uh, and it, it sounds as if that's kind of at the center of all these things you're doing. I think that's a good wrap up. There, there is a phrase for people like me, I guess, for lack, well, hold on, backing up. I think what we're talking about is just patient engagement in general. Yes. And um, I, there's a, I heard someone, a doctor, I, I can send you a, a white paper, but um, there's this, there's the whole concept of e-patients, e-patients. You can mm -hmm. look it up on the internet and it's, it stands for the empowered and engaged patient. And um, there, Dr. Tom Ferguson wrote this paper about the concept of the e-patient, you know, 10 years ago now, where he says that the most underlies, underutilized resource in healthcare is the patient. And we're always running around talking about how can we help the patient, how can we cure the patient, blah, 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 blah. But there's this experience the patient has. This, it, it, It's like, you know, creating a new line of cars, but never talking to the drivers about what they like <laughs> about driving. And so I think medicine is, you know, realizing how important it is to involve the patient in research, in you know, the experience, um, their feedback, and more and more funding is starting to develop, funding resources are develop, developing to support research around this concept, or um, funding is available now to invite patients to medical conferences. You, uh, this is a new concept just in the past few years where at a medical conference, it would be other clinicians and researchers, maybe some technologists, but the patients weren't in the room. And the topic of the day was what's best for the patient. And yet the patient was never there to be part of the conversation. Yeah, it, it's a little crazy, but um, having watched... Uh, there really has been a change in how willing people are to talk about their own experiences and end of life issues and all of that. And it seems in line with that, that it used to, you know, my parents sort of most of their lives took their bodies to the doctor, let the doctor do whatever, and then picked up their body and took it home, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so it seems to me like the younger the person is, the more likely you're going to want to, kind of maintain your ownership uh, and, you know, say, no, it's, it, this is me going through this. And so I, I hope we're saying that the medical community is responding to that much more than it used to. Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, there's a, a culture change going on in how we consume many things, not just, um, you know, media and, you know, not all of us are, are, watching the news of the day in front of a TV at a certain time where, you know, through various channels and digital devices, we learn about things we share with our friends and healthcare is changing in that same way and needs to adapt to respond. And, and, and also, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm in my thirties, but I wouldn't say that it's just quote people under or within a certain age that are consuming health and seeing health this way. One of, one of the leaders in the engaged patient movement or the e-patient movement is a guy named e-patient Dave. Uh, you could search his name too, e-patient Dave. And he's in his 60s. He's in his later 60s. 
and he is passionate about access to his patient medical information and he believes by more access to information and sharing freely and engaging as and seen as an equal partner in his care with his doctor is what saves his life. So Absolutely. I think I might have misspoken slightly. I'm 63 <laughs> tomorrow, actually. So, you know, I'm not saying exactly. I'm just saying it was less like that when I was a younger person. Absolutely. At, um, and so uh, people who are younger maybe are more um, get get to invite themselves into that earlier, which I think is so great. Uh, no, certainly I, I know <laughs> lots of people um, doing this work who are of every age, but I do think it's the conversation is, is changing. Uh, it's much more open than it was, for instance, when my wife was sick. Yeah. Uh, we had to work really hard to put her in charge of her health care, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think there there's there's signs of hope that that's less hard, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, it's at, because of where I work for a nonprofit in the healthcare space. Um, we we talk about we deal with people who are we, we talk about a population of people who are dealing with serious chronic illnesses, whether that's cancer, heart disease, um, that category, or or and people who are nearing the end of their life. So we're talking about people who may be in end stages of cancer or they're dealing with Alzheimer's or dementia. And one thing, and, and, and me being a patient and added value, we talk about how can we talk about the end of life further upstream before people are sick and aging. And usually that means a population of people who are younger. And we, we, we wonder what, what is the potential of bringing, how do we get to people? How do we get Mm. younger, healthier people to think about the end of life sooner in a way that doesn't scare them, but is open and and helps people want to think about these things. Absolutely. Talk to their family members about these things and then document them in an advanced direction. Hopefully hopefully we've done a little bit to to wake that up today and I'm going to keep an eye on what you're doing because I know you're going to do more with that. Thanks really so much for, for being with me today, Liz. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And and listeners, you can go to LizArmy.com, thelizarmy.com to see other things she's done. Next week, Sarah and Bobby Sheehan will join me to talk about their film, Mortal, an excellent film illuminating perspectives on death, and the new film they're working on now called Hope, in which they explore how to maintain hope in the face of death. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.